Yes. Well, as you uh, pull out your outline, you'll notice that we've made it through uh, Romans chapter 12. We're on to chapter 13, and we are light at the end of tunnel time, getting there. And uh, I've got my assignment today for the first seven verses. And what's interesting is, according to J.C. O'Neill, these seven verses have caused more unhappiness and misery in the Christian East and West than any other seven verses in the New Testament. So we have a fun task in front of us. If you're a child of the 80s like I am, you remember John Cougar Mellencamp and his Pink Houses and some of the other songs. One of his famous songs was the Authority Song. Do you remember? I fight authority. Very good. (laughs) And John wasn't alone. All through history, People have been fighting the law. From the first murder of Abel by his brother Cain, down to Martha Stewart's illegal stock tips. Lawlessness has been a problem in our world. Every age has set up its leaders and its ways to keep their people from hurting and destroying each other. Some with better success than others. While the Old Testament records the only true theocracy in history, where God was truly the ruler, where God gave the laws and had an active, obvious role in punishing or rewarding the people, while that's the only time that happened, God has been and continues to be involved in the governments that have arisen. He sets up leaders... And he takes them down. Perhaps he gives the people the leaders they deserve. Perhaps he gives them better or worse. What they don't deserve. We'll see God's purposes through history. Let's look at what Paul has for us. I've got the English Standard Version. Romans 13, 1-7. Let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do What is good. And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. There's a lot in there. And these seven verses give us the startling, groundbreaking, paradigm-shifting idea that Christians should obey the law. I hope you noticed my sarcasm, because a quick read through these verses... I don't see the unhappiness and misery that Mr. O'Neill claims is there or that is caused. If you were building a theology or maybe teaching a class, a semester-long class on Christian interaction with the state, there are many, many passages you would pull from. I think you would start and in the Old Testament, and look at how God set up Israel, and, and he had judges for a while, and then they asked for a king, and, and what the mess that brought eventually, and, and then get into where Jesus didn't uh, follow what the Jewish people wanted him to do to overthrow Rome, and uh, Peter has verses a lot like these. But I think as you look at this topic, you have to start here in these verses, or at least get to them early on, because this is the foundation of how we understand Christians and their governments. And Paul is laying the groundwork and he's saying, you know, this is the ideal situation. Ideally, governments should act like this and you should obey for these reasons. And he doesn't delve into the hundreds of situations that complicate that relationship. The nuances, the exceptions. He has simply come to the point in Romans where they've heard how to be saved. They've heard that they need renewed, transformed minds. And now he's helping them work that out in a very practical way. R. Kent Hughes, commentator, says this, we must realize what the passage does not tell us. It does not directly say that we ought to do when, what, a, what to do when a government departs from the role God has given it. It does not specifically explain what to do when our government is committing a moral wrong. Neither are we told what to do in the midst of revolution. It also does not show us which form of government is best. It does not even commend democracy. Many of the difficulties found in this chapter result from what is read into it rather than from what it actually teaches. So as we look at these seven verses, I'm going to try to stick very closely to what Paul teaches. You could spend weeks, probably months, in a Sunday school debating those other issues that arise naturally from looking at this topic. But let's see what Paul has to teach us. I think the foundation, the very beginning point of this discussion 
is that God has established all authority. See that in verse one. No authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. We see the human role, but we have to acknowledge the divine role in every election, every promotion in government. And of course, we believe that God establishes parents to raise their children as their primary authority. And we hope we recognize that elders and pastors in the local church are there for your spiritual leadership. And those of us who work have bosses. Those of us in school have teachers. There are many types of authorities. We are going to keep our discussion today on the governing authorities, as Paul does. Those whose full-time job is in, in the government. Let's look at the ways that Paul describes that governing authority. You might have missed it as we read through. But Paul calls a government leader, government authority, God's servant. And the same word used is also used for deacon. It's listed twice in verse 4. He is God's servant for your good. And then later at the end, he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God's servant who will carry out his instructions, whether they be for our good or for our bad. Of course, we understand that ultimately even punishment is for our good. So, the deacon. Then in verse 6, Paul goes and says that these leaders are God's ministers. Ministers. And the sense of that word is, is one who discharges a God-given duty. And I think it's strange to our ears to, it's very foreign to hear the Bible refer to people in government the same way it addresses roles in the church. I mean, I could understand if Dave Silvernail was elected mayor of Leesburg. I owe you a dollar, sorry. But if Dave was the mayor of Leesburg, I think we'd all get excited and say, yes, God has put his minister in a position of influence and authority in the government. And we can understand that. But I think what's wild about what Paul is saying is there is no indication that these authorities even need to be Christians. They certainly weren't in Paul's day. The leader in Paul's day, the emperor, was Nero, who found very creative and deranged ways to kill Christians. And yet Paul calls him a servant of God, a minister. It's not even until the third century that we really have much of a Christian influence in government when Constantine becomes the emperor. But what Paul is saying is that any government leader is God's servant and God's minister, whether he knows it or not. And we must recognize that. You see, God places, yes, a very high premium on his church and the roles that we fulfill 
in discipling, evangelism, bringing the gospel to the world, and guarding the truth of the Bible. But God also places a very high premium on a well-organized, secular governing body that keeps order. Now, because God has established all authority, we must obey every law. Government and the rule of law is so important because man is fallen. Man is naturally depraved and wicked. Do you remember uh, the movie The Patriot? Mel Gibson's character is debating whether he should join the Continental Army and fight against the British in the Revolutionary War. And at the beginning of the movie, he's, he doesn't want to. And he stands up in front of the South Carolina Assembly Legislature and says, Why should I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? And what I take from that is that even the worst government is better than no government at all. We think of the words in the Bible in the book of Judges when the times were characterized as when everyone did as they saw fit. Because there was no king, there was no law. And when that happens, men resort to their basest selfishness. St. Augustine says, without justice, what are kingdoms but great gangs of robbers? God is very much on the side of constituted authority. And he expects us to obey. Related to that and and something that Paul hammers very specifically in these verses is our duty to pay taxes. And I think Paul is restating what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 17 through 21, where remember the story The Pharisees come to Jesus and try to trap him. Say, hey, should we pay taxes? Because they know if he says yes, then a lot of the Jewish people will think he's just a tool of the Roman government. And if he says no, then they can turn him in and get him arrested. So what does Jesus do? He pulls out the coin with the image of Caesar on it. And says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God. What is God's? And I think it's fascinating that Caesar's image is there. And I think Jesus is saying, it's just money. In fact, he pulls, as Peter pulled money out of a fish's mouth, it's just money, pay it. Be obedient. But the higher principle, where is God's image stamped? And what belongs to God? We are made in God's image. So Jesus is saying, give yourself, your life, to God. Your money, send it. Obey. So here Paul calls us to that again. And I think there's a a line of thinking, of reasoning that Possibly we Christians are afraid that our money, our taxes, are going to support something bad in the government. And there is one line of reasoning that a way to protest, 
being civilly disobedient is to withhold our taxes. Um, you remember Henry David Thoreau, who was jailed in, after refusing to pay a poll tax when he opposed the Mexican War, the United States War against Mexico. He followed his convictions. We applaud him for that. But I don't think Paul gives us that option as Christians. I think we would say that if you see something wrong, evil in government that you don't want to support, you do what you need to do to get it changed. You voice your opinion in all legal ways. Protests, sign petitions, those kind of things. But you do not have the option of withholding your taxes. And furthermore, you are not responsible for where those taxes go. Men in government will answer for how they've spent. Our obedience to leaders, however, including our parents, ends when they ask us to do something that goes against God's word. We think of Daniel. Paul doesn't really address this, but I needed to because it's naturally what springs up in our mind when we hear obey the government. What if they ask us to do something against God's law? And we have the example of of Daniel who was told not to pray. Couldn't do it. Kept praying. The early Christians, Peter and John, were forbidden to teach about this man Jesus. They couldn't submit to that. They went out the very next day after being told forcibly not to. And they said, we obey God rather than men. Your obedience to God is always higher than your obedience to any authority. And you must respectfully decline to do anything contrary to what God has called you to. However, you've got to be willing to pay the consequences of that resistance. That could include losing your job, losing your possessions, your freedom, in some cases, your life. We know we're coming up on Persecuted Church Sunday. And we know how Christians in other countries must disobey the government to worship But the good news is that here, most of the time, obeying authority is obeying God. We need to remember also what F.F. Bruce says, that Christians will voice their no to Caesar, to Caesar's unauthorized demands, the more effectively if they have shown themselves ready to say yes to his authorized demands. I just titled my new Saturn car, and we actually just bought a car for our wildlife ministry. And that's just a pain in the neck, isn't it? Those DMV lines, they're not fun. All that money we're shelling out. But when we obey those kind of things, we show ourselves as good citizens to the authorities. When we protest something that they are asking us to do, it will stick and it will resonate better when we have obeyed 
in the things that don't contradict God's word. Unjust laws need to be changed through the proper channels. Our minds, I think my mind at least, immediately ran to a lot of uh, movies and TV shows, movie uh, book plots. You know, real drama is when the hero has to take the law into his own hands, right? And often they have to break the law in order to ultimately save the day, right? And I, you think of Robin Hood stealing from the rich to feed the poor, and uh, I think of the movie last year with Nicolas Cage, National Treasure, where he has to steal the Declaration of Independence to save it. And there's real drama in that. But I think we're called as Christians to hunger and thirst for obedience to God first and foremost, but to also every other authority in our lives. Christian civil disobedience should be rare. Like I said before, there is a place and a need for us to be citizens, to protest, to sign petitions, to run for office. I'm sure you guys have looked at this text a few times in your Patrick Henry courses. To disobey a direct order, to do something unbiblical, is acceptable. But normal obedience should be to follow the law. Because God has established that law, that authority. Another area that Paul gets to in this discussion is that because God has established all authority, the government has the right to use the sword. Remember what he says? He does not bear the sword in vain. It is not for show. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath. Total pacifism, the idea that not only individuals, but also governments should never use force, never use violence, I think is an impossible position to defend biblically. As we look at the Old Testament, very difficult to understand sometimes. I'll just pull one of the uh, historical narratives out. Remember, after when Moses brings the Ten Commandments down, what have the Israelites done? They've made a golden calf, right? Well, the part that doesn't get put in the children's storybook is after that, God commands Moses to get all the faithful men of Israel, says, strap on your sword and go through the camp and kill anyone who is disobedient. Thousands of men die. This wasn't God's judgment on a pagan nation as we sometimes see in the Old Testament. This is God's judgment on disobedient, the disobedient of the chosen nation. And you say, well, you know, God was a God of justice and wrath in the Old Testament. God is now a God of love and forgiveness. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow and forever. 
God has always been a God of love and forgiveness. And He will always be a God of justice and wrath. So we cannot separate these. There are a few verses that would seem to support pacifism in all areas. Uh, Jesus certainly teaches to turn the other cheek. Jesus rebukes Peter when he uses his sword and says those who live by the sword die by the sword. Surely those passages apply, right? A number of places it says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill. But I think what we need to look at is all of those Verses are speaking to personal revenge, personal retribution. In fact, uh, Dave Crenshaw and I were discussing this at the Presbytery retreat we went to. Do not kill. Thou shalt not kill is not a good translation of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder is the actual commandment. To kill is to end someone's life in a number of different contexts. To murder indicates personal Retribution, personal vengeance. Um, these other ones, turn the other cheek. Uh, vengeance is mine. Prohibit us from striking back. As we take the Bible in its full context, we have to weigh what we've read today and other passages like it where God authorizes the use of the sword. God allows the fact for the fact that some in government must punish sin, sometimes ending an offender's life. But we are prohibited from personally taking things into our own hands. You do not have the power of the sword. Your weapon is truth and the power of the gospel. Now again, there are a lot of issues that will arise and spring up that I wish we had a long Sunday school uh, series to discuss. But one, one other issue I wanted to hit before we got out of here, and, and again, Paul, Paul does not say anything about this, but I thought we'd turn to it for a second, because the question naturally arises if government is given the power of the sword and I'm drafted into the military, what is my response? Not as pressing a question today as it was 40 years ago, Sure. But still one that demands a thoughtful answer. And as we search the scriptures to answer that, I think it comes down to the fact, the idea that you need to evaluate whether what you are participating in is a just war that God would ordain. And there are, without getting too deeply into the just war theory of the, the understanding that this Military force is going to bring more good and, and stop more evil than it brings on. Um, and that it's the last resort. And there's a number of different ones without getting too far into it and without passing judgment on recent wars. I think my answer would be, I don't ever want to join an army. Uh, I don't want to be drafted. I don't want to kill anyone. But if I was drafted and asked to do that, and I felt that it was a just war in God's sight, 
then I have to recognize that that authority is instituted by God and I would be appointed as God's agent. If you do not believe that that is a just war, I think you go back to the respectfully declining to participate and paying the consequences of that. Talk about that over lunch today. That would be great. But uh, I'm sure there will be a lot of debate. But because God has established all authority, let's take this a step farther as we round out Paul's discussion. We must honor and respect those in government. You see, Paul doesn't just want to get at our outward obedience. He's not just interested in how we act. Paul is interested. He wants to get at our heart attitudes. And I don't think Paul is going to let you or me as Christians get away with an attitude toward the police, toward the IRS, towards Congress, President, whoever, and say, I'll do what you ask. But I don't like it. I don't like you and I'm going to complain. There is a way to critique government that is constructive and that is honoring and respectful. But there is also a destructive, unchristian way that dishonors and disrespects. There was a recent article in World Magazine uh, talking about Ann Coulter. And I, I, I've only read a few pages of her stuff, and I don't have cable, so I don't know what she, if she's on a show or whatever. But it was discussing the idea. She, she admits that she's a believer, she's a Christian. And yet her political discourse is very sarcastic, angry, um, and ugly. It's kind of the right's version of Al Franken on the left, and... And the magazine ultimately said, asked the question, well, do we have to argue like that to get their attention? I don't think Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would allow us to do that. He says, give respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I remember the Clinton years and I remember hearing Christians absolutely trashing him as an individual and the nasty jokes they would tell. And If you were part of that, you should repent. In the same way, if you run down George Bush and make the jokes about his intelligence and dishonor and disrespect him, you should repent. Paul is calling us to the high road of respect and honor and obedience to authority. One of the assistant pastors at the church I was in middle school and high school at in Houston, his name was Buck, Buck Oliphant. And he was stopped one time for speeding. I've only got three uh, tickets in my life. And um, you know the feeling when the lights go on behind you and trying to figure out how to get out of it. 
Buck got a ticket that day. And as the officer handed him the ticket, he said, and I think in all sincerity, officer, I just want to thank you for discharging your God-given duty. I'm sure the cop thought he was being a smart aleck. I don't think he got out of it. But I think that needs to be our attitude. To recognize the authority over us. And we need to acknowledge that punishment is often for our good. I just read an article also about uh, a soy Christian. Pass it on to some of the people, that, uh, kids, students that enjoy skateboarding in the youth group. That he was one of the most famous skaters in America in his teens. But he got involved in kind of the drug culture and went to prison. He's since become a Christian and he's on tour with uh, Stephen Baldwin and his uh, extreme Christian games or whatever it is. But how many people, including this man, have, have we heard say that was the best thing that could have happened to me? Maybe flunking out of school, hitting rock bottom somewhere, being punished by the government, by the authorities, might be the best thing that happens to help us reevaluate our lives. So we have to be careful not to resent authority. We must embrace it, honor those people, and thank God for them. And now we come kind of full circle to where we started and to what I've brought unto each point is that Yes, God has established and instituted all authority. And we believe that we should obey. Because ultimately we trust God's authority in our lives. And Paul's whole premise falls apart if you don't trust God. And if you doubt His authority in your life or His His commanding presence. God rules the universe for His own glory and His purposes. His laws and moral commands are for our good. If you've ever taken an evangelism class, um, I remember one of them, there's evangelism explosion. And there's a certain part as you're far along in presenting the gospel. and, And it says, now's a good time to dispel kind of the myths about God. And one is that he's a grandfather, just looking down from heaven, just old and wise, but harmless. The other is a policeman who's just waiting for us to step out of line. You know, some people have that idea of God and just bash us back into line. But I'm here to tell you that God is not a policeman. He's much tougher than a policeman. A policeman may catch us sometimes. I always get nervous when Josh is in my car. <laughs> I think he's going to pull out his badge and give me a ticket. <laughs> no. I love you, Josh. <laughs> a policeman may catch you one out of hundreds of times that you've broken the law. But God sees everything you do. God sees and knows 
not only our actions and our words, our attitudes and our thoughts. God intends to punish every one of them. His justice demands that our sin be paid for and punished. But the good news this morning, and for all time, is that God offers to take that punishment for us. God has already taken the punishment for our sins on the cross. And that's an offer worth taking. And it's an authority worth submitting our lives to. Let's stand for our final song. Let me pray as the worship team comes up.